two poems for you now, both written and narrated by Tina Yates. Holiday Romance My darling, I'll love you forever, he cried with his hands up my shirt. My love, I'll always adore you, he sighed as he lifted my skirt. We romped and we rolled in the heather. I was dazed by the blue of the sky. Passion blazed in the holiday weather, though my heart somehow knew that he lied. It was fun while it lasted. I knew that for us too no future was there. But oh, the delights of that heather mat, when my soul and my skin were both bare. Life's a zoo. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but the two in the bush sing the loudest. Cage a wild animal, there for all to see, but look in or looking out, who is proudest? Let them free to roam, those proud beasts of the wild. If they hide, who blames them, for why should they trust? As you toil in your cage, a human, a child, wonder why we're locked up. Who says that we must? Fingers and thumb. The youngsters' fingers press and work. Their bodies hunch, their shoulders jerk. Their lips stay closed, a conversation piece. Their fingers work and they stay mum. Their iPads work, it's face to face. Their minds think on, they're having fun. But talk to gran, they cannot do. The console's lure is too great too. The gadgets work and they stay dumb. The youth of today use finger and thumb. Stay in their rooms when company call. Lost in thought, distant from it all. Conversations limited, lips pressed shut. Their favourite word is silence or what? The devil take them, they just don't care. But for technology they have a flair. They know what to press and get what they need. They get their fix, they get their feed. New gadgets they just must have. Play different genres, even old-time jazz. A technological world, it's theirs to play. Conversation's the price we all must pay. Headsets installed, they talk to one another. But the language is aggressive from brother to brother. Is it a phase? Will they grow up one day? Or is it just life that's here to stay? The Butterfly and the Lavender Bush was written and is narrated by Andrea Weeding. Do enjoy. Within sun-warmed white sail sheets, on honeyed currents of summer air, I flitter-flutter bright new wing beats. Hovering and pirouetting in joyful flight, buoyant with fragility, I'm weightless and feather-free in a world of colour and light. The scent of sugared flower stems, so breezily seducing, with ultraviolet faces and perfumed kisses calling, lure me in, and latching on to fragrant petals, I dip into nectar-soaked silkiness, stillness, on my tongue drunken sweetness, dancing through hues of sunlit blue, fervently flitting to another flower, her lusciousness to devour. The poem you're about to hear is called Lowther Hills, was written and is narrated by Jean Fairburn. Wisps of white mist chase thick fog over Lowther and dance in the distance on bare rocky peaks where hills and skies splice and merge in the sleet. Rainstorms spurt upwards like fireworks and fountains and Catherine wheels spin towards faraway mountains where diamond-cut rain slashes the soaking terrain and wind-wet eagles alone hold domain. 
Tablecloth coverlets of translucent pearl transform lush valleys into sparkling new worlds, which diamond bright with fluorescent light showcase emeralds glittering green which dance all night, a king's ransom for a jeweled landscape where grass glistens with raindrops of rainbow-coloured glass. Running storm water fills up the dry burns which pour into channels once empty that churn, run riot past rapids with riot and rush, wash into waterfalls which gurgle and gush, replenishing drains and the driest of ditches, reviving tinctures and fabric and richness of brown bracken patches after a downpour, spreading web cob gauze over heathered moors. The Twilight Years When I get old, I don't want to grow cold, all frosty and fusty and grim. It's important to feel like I'm me. I don't want to dress up in twin sets and pearls, crimpling slacks or Velcro booties. I won't be wearing voluminous bloomers in pastel pink lilac or blue. No flesh-coloured stockings or wrinkly old tights. No corsets or garters or stays. No tight curly perm or startling blue rinse. No lacquer, no set, no thank you. I prefer a pink buzz cut and naughty tattoo. No hairnets or bed socks or flannelette nighties or rollers like Andy Cap's wife. No dentures and tumblers all gleaming and white, smirking and grinning throughout the night. I want to stay youthful inside my own head, no matter how ancient I get. I still want to party and travel and learn, go out in the rain and get wet, to dance in the snow and stroll on the beach with warm sand under my feet. Picnics and drinkies sitting under the trees, a blanket spread out on the grass, no genteel sweet sherry in the daintiest glass. I'm more of a cava girl, me. Just open a bottle and give me a straw, or maybe a large G&T. I won't be shocked by the swearing, or a bit of old sex on TV. No smelling salts needed for me, for a gajuza's bare-naked nudity. I won't be a delicate flower, blushing and tutting and always offended, no pursing my lips or rolling my eyes, or passing away in a horrified faint when language is rough round the edges. I will bleep right along with the best, and might put your ears to the test. Don't see myself joining the WI, parish council or ladies who lunch. I won't insist on a best china cup, rattling a dance in the saucer. A mug and a brew will always suffice, and one of those biscuits called nice. No doilies, no coasters, no frills and no fuss. Life's much too short to be twee. Not formal or awkward or stiff. I want my time filled full of glee. Colours and music and fun and surprise. With mixing of ages, the old and the new. Not stuck in stale habits and set in my ways. But adventures and spreading my wings. I want to be honest. I want to be wise. I want independence. I want to be close. I still want to feel like I'm me. So when I gaze in the mirror, I might look more wrinkled. My memory might not be the best, but laughter's forever, and books are a gift, and fresh air and nature are free. So with all of these things, and a dear friend or two, I know I will always stay me. The Last Sale of the Season was written by Graham Emmett and is narrated by Kevin Daly. Do enjoy. It was to be a sale to Waldering Field on Friday afternoon to pick up the last crew member that night then down to Bordsea the following day for lunchtime, followed by Saturday night at the Ramsholder Arms Inn. 
and back up at the Tide Mill in Woodbridge on the Sunday, to all being well, that was the plan anyway. Sitting at the end of the bar in the Ramsholt Arms Inn was an old sea dog, who asked which yacht we were on, having seen our wet weather gear and life jackets. As we started talking, the subject came up about the history of the area. We all expected it to be about the development of radar at Bordsey Manor. But no. A tale of murder and a phantom Napoleonic skiff that appeared once a year on a certain day. The story went along the lines that a French man-of-war had gone aground on the notorious sandbanks in that area, in the fog, and broken up. Some of the Matalots had managed to abandon ship in a wooden longboat, only to be found by the local fishermen, who took it upon themselves to dispatch them, believing them to be spies. They cast the dead sailors off with the boat on fire, so that no trace could be found. At the end, he confessed that his ancestor had been one of the guilty fishermen. On that cheery note, we bade him good night, and headed for the door where we were greeted by a fog so thick you could barely see your hand in front of you. Finding the boat could be interesting. Safely back on board, an old oil lamp was lit to save the batteries. It gave a warming, flickering glow to the cabin. Well, that was an interesting piece of local history. I've not heard of that before. I wonder if there's any truth in it, I said as we drank our Captain Morgan nightcap. The faint, slow, rhythmic sounds of oars going into the glassy, still water could be heard in the distance. Someone must be looking for their yacht, I said. Then, a sudden chill entered the cabin, freezing the condensation on the insides of the windows. Then a bump on the side of the boat. At the same time, the oil lamp flickered and went out. Next, the sound of foreign voices accompanied by splashing paddles as another returning crew tried to find their boat after a night ashore. That must have been them, said Geoffrey, and we all turned in for the night. The fog of the night before had turned to a light mist when the sun would burn off quickly. With no wind, it would mean motoring back up to the Tide Mill Marina in Woodbridge, and later that week we heard on the local news that a body had been washed up on the shore a few miles down the coast, it had been slashed and hacked about. The only clues that the police had to go on were the charred remains of an old wooden longboat and rusting antique sailors' cutlasses of the Napoleonic era. They had identified him as an old fisherman who had been the last remaining descendant of the fisherman who had killed French sailors from a ship wrecked there 200 years before. Maybe there had been truth in that fisherman's tale, in the Ramshold Arms after all. What a Wonderful World was written and is narrated by Janet Nichols. Enjoy. They had nothing to say to each other because they'd learnt not to speak. And even now they said very little. But today they could at least sing. And sing they did with gusto, and the words came out loudly and publicly for the first time ever. I see leaves of green, red roses too, sang Carol, 
hugging her brother's arm as they strolled stubbornly across the car park. I see them bloom for me and you, sang Eddie with a rare smile on his face. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world, they sang together, both looking at the grey sky over the crematorium as though it was the most beautiful sight they'd ever seen. And they carried on singing as they walked past the waiting mourners, for the first time voicing the words out loud and not just in their heads to blunt the sharpness of his blows. Dad's private voice would always be hard and vicious, but they were now proud of their resourcefulness in saving themselves. The colours of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, sang Carol. You will not answer back, hit! And it stung. You will learn, you moron, hit! And it stung. Are also on the pit bases of people going by, sang Eddie as he saw their former neighbours' puzzled faces. You will not answer back, hit! Another sting. You will learn, and there'll be no supper for you today. Yet another cut. He had made sure that the marks on his belt were on their bodies and not their little arms or legs, so that no one, absolutely no one, could see that nice Mr Topping was actually a brute. Carol and Eddie walked into the crematorium, both wearing uncharacteristically bright clothes and conspicuous amongst the morning black. Eddie was attired in a garish Hawaiian shirt he'd bought especially from a charity shop, all blue skies and palm trees, whilst Carol had on her best summer party frock in pink gingham with appliqued flowers. And the mourners who were there to regret the passing of a fine, upstanding lay preacher just stood and gawped as the children of such a good man showed so little respect while taking their front row seats. Why hadn't they arranged a proper church service for their eminently religious father? It was a mystery to everyone, but Carol and Eddie knew and couldn't explain because they'd been taught not to speak. The spoken words couldn't come even though they were hugging freedom to themselves with relish. The music being played as the coffin was brought slowly down the aisle seemed to others to be totally out of keeping with the supposed sadness of the occasion. Yet it was their childhood's internal lullaby, giving them a glow that now far surpassed the silent comfort it had provided when they nursed their wounds in bed. The man singing it on the radio had become their substitute father, his strong warm voice being that of a fairy story giant who could ease their minds even when they hurt too much and could barely whisper. So now he had become the friendly giant who was welcoming them to a new life. I see friends shaking hands, saying how do you do? They're really saying I love you. Louis Armstrong was singing now. Carol and Eddie were still not speaking, but each knew that the other was singing along inside. What a wonderful world. Iced Magic, written by Felicity Radcliffe. Wearily, she surveyed the photo. No one in the bar matched up, although, based on past experience, she was looking for someone ten years older and two stone heavier than the man in the picture. 
Nervously, she ruffled her sleek blonde bob, wondering why she had wasted a haircut on this guy and bothered to jazz up her jeans with a sequin top. Suddenly, someone tapped her on the shoulder and she jumped. Hi, Natalie. I'm Ben. Sorry, I've broken online dating rule one by being late. Are you okay? You look shocked. Hi, Ben. I'm okay. Just surprised. You look exactly like your photo. That's rare. With his mid-brown hair and unremarkable features, Ben would never be picked out in a police identity parade. There's no point in faking or filtering, I think. Better to under-promise and over-deliver... Oh, God. Sorry, I didn't mean... No worries, interrupted Natalie, taking pity on him. Let's get a drink. To break the ice, they broke online dating rule two. Don't discuss your exes. Well, you win the drama prize, Ben conceded. I never met someone whose husband left her for a cousin. I must seem boring just drifting apart from my ex. If you can bear to spend more time with someone so dull, let's have dinner next week. I know a nice Vietnamese restaurant. Natalie hesitated. Okay, she said eventually. On the way home, she chastised herself for agreeing to a second date and worried what Ruth would say. So let's get this straight. Ruth grabbed the wine bottle and refilled their glasses. There was no spark, no chemistry between you and this guy, yet you accepted a second date? Why? I suppose I wimped out. Natalie hung her head. He just seemed like a nice person. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Nat, if you're going to meet Mr. Wright, you haven't got time for nice. Bin him. Move on. I'll give him one more chance. If dinner doesn't work out, I'll say goodbye. Ruth put her head in her hands. The restaurant was intimate, unlike the conversation, which flowed as freely as the sticky rice balanced on their chopsticks. Politely, they discussed their jobs. Ben's stilted account of life as an auditor failed to break down the barriers, so Natalie ploughed gamely on describing the record company where she worked. Although her procurement role was unglamorous, her anecdotes about dissolute, stroppy musicians usually made people laugh, but tonight they fell flat. Desperately, she changed the subject to hobbies. They had more success there, as they both loved outdoor pursuits, particularly skiing. Suddenly, Ben began twisting his napkin nervously, and Natalie sensed that he was working up to something. She was right. Um, a group of us are going skiing. One person's dropped out, and I thought you might like to come. You'd have your own room, and the snow conditions are excellent. Loads of powder. I'm just asking you as a friend. No pressure or anything. Ben tailed off and fiddled with his chopsticks as he waited for an answer. Natalie hesitated, thinking of Ruth's predictable response, then shrugged defiantly. What the hell, she thought. I deserve some fun. Well, if you're promising powder, I'm in, she said eventually. I love powder. I just hate icy conditions. 
You've got to be joking, Ruth peered censoriously over her glasses at Natalie. You can't even converse, yet you're going skiing? Bag yourself and a ski instructor, that's my advice. They're always fit. The skiing trip was surprisingly successful. Everyone was single except Karen and Isabel, and the group bonded well over numerous après ski beers. As promised, the snow was superb. Natalie and Karen, both intermediates, skied together every day, whilst Ben tackled the most challenging black runs early on, then spent the afternoons helping Isabel, who was a novice and in ski school every morning. On the last afternoon, Karen and Natalie sat together in a bar overlooking the nursery slopes. Karen had twisted her knee earlier and was planning to miss the next morning's skiing, which the others were fitting in before their flight home. Look at Ben. He's so patient. Izzy says she learns more from him than from her ski instructor. He's so kind and explains everything really well. Karen smiled affectionately as Isabel toppled over once again. You're right, agreed Natalie. It's rare to find an expert skier who is prepared to help a beginner. Fancy another van show? The following morning, Ben sat down opposite Natalie at breakfast. Shredding his croissant anxiously, he asked, As Karen is injured, do you fancy skiing with me? There's a quiet area that I discovered last year. It would be perfect for our final morning. Natalie hesitated. Okay, she said eventually. As soon as she got off the lift, she knew. Instead of biting comfortingly into the snow, her skis rattled uncontrollably across the hard, packed, glassy surface. Instantly, her body reverted to beginner mode. Looking down at the slope as it dropped steeply away, she saw translucent, deadly ice everywhere and fought back tears as Ben joined her. Sorry about the ice, he began. The conditions here are different from last year. I can't do this, Natalie quavered. Of course you can. You're just out of your comfort zone, a bit like me sometimes. Natalie stared at him, realization dawning. The secret to skiing on ice is letting go. Don't try and control it. Go with it. Look, let me show you. Natalie took Ben's advice and let go. She fell several times and cursed Ben repeatedly, but over the course of the morning, with his help, she mastered the dreaded ice. Smiling with triumphant relief, she finally glided to a halt beside him. Well, it seems you're actually good at leaving your comfort zone behind, smiled Ben. Better than me, definitely. Fancy teaching me how? This time, Natalie did not hesitate. Yes, she replied. Alex was cross. Margaret never stopped moaning at him, about him, criticising him, just like his mother used to when he was a child. Easily irritated, he was annoyed that Margaret was keeping him waiting in the rain. He was outside the hairdressers and she was inside. Married for 60 years, Margaret could be seen through the shop window chatting to a young stylist 
and making the girl giggle. She was playing at being a sweet old lady. Alex knew better. He was getting wetter and wetter, the rain of the late autumn afternoon seeping into the seams of his waterproof coat. Bloody women, he growled, his mind merging his wife and mother into one, so that before long he couldn't distinguish one from the other. Moan he might, but Alex rarely challenged Margaret's bad behaviour. The fallout was too damaging for him. She always withdrew his privileges, sex that is. His eyes watered. Alex had learnt early in life that confronting a woman with what she didn't want to hear always ended in disaster. Consequently, Alex allowed his wife to act the spoilt child and opted for a quiet life, although he expected his daughters to act like the adults of the family. His father's early disappearance from family life and his mother's denials and smoke screening of the truth about him haunted Alex and had given him an indelible inferiority complex. How could a father of 13 children be wiped off the face of the earth just like that? It had been in the mid-1920s, Alex calculated. He would have been four or five years old when his father had not come home. Alex had suffered flashbacks about a hot summer's afternoon, raised voices and some sort of commotion, but couldn't get to the bottom of that nightmarish scene, and his mother and older siblings had ring-fenced it and built a wall of silence around some sort of incident as high as the Great Wall of China that Alex had seen in an atlas at school. Later in life, Alex assumed the family were trying to protect their reputation from a scandal that none of them even acknowledged had taken place. Waiting in the rain for his wife, Alex knew that this time was nearly up, knew that he would never get to the bottom of a mystery that he felt was somehow his fault. His brothers and sisters were all dead. He was the last of Hugh's brood of thirteen. Or was it twelve? He'd always been the odd one out. His brothers had called him a sissy, a mummy's boy, and why did no one have a photograph of this man, their absentee father? Not even a wedding photograph. Married in 1898 in Tranent. Everybody had a wedding photograph, except his mother. Alex was very aware that his own time clock was running out, and not wanting to give up, had joined a Find Your Family History class at the local library. He'd been fussed over and loved it, but it hit a snag straight away. Family trees boasted the photograph of a proud patriarch at their head. Alex's family tree sported a blank white square where the photograph should have been. Prepared to do battle to solve the mystery of his father's disappearance, Alex stood to attention as best he could. He'd worn the battle kilt of the Glasgow Cameronians and been part of the D-Day landings on those machine-gun-raked beaches in June 1944. Then he'd marched through France and into bomb-flattened Hamburg without a scratch, only to be captured by Margaret, glamorous in her WAF uniform with its corporal stripes, at a village hall dance in leafy Surrey. A much-indulged only child, Margaret had enough self-confidence for both of them 
and they married in haste, repented at leisure. Margaret demanded so much more of Alex than he could possibly deliver. Three daughters followed in quick succession, whom Margaret quickly labelled difficult or naughty, and Alex, conditioned to wanting a quiet life, was forced to agree with his wife. The most serious incident involved a wind-up gramophone, a German language love song on a 78 RPM record which began with Das Goeis Etwas, which translated means that certain something, and a long-handled axe for chopping firewood. Alex had obtained the items for two packs of army-issue cigarettes in a bombed-out Hamburg suburb as a wedding gift for Margaret. However, the romantic gesture had fallen flat. Margaret hated the German language as much as she hated the song her girls sang along to in their high voices, winding up the big handle, placing the needle on the spinning record and listening to the magical melody that wafted across the back garden, filling it with high guttural crooning of forbidden love. That hot August day, according to Margaret, the girls had been naughty all day. Alex had worked a gruelling 12-hour night shift on the railway and returned home to find a pile of washing up Margaret had left in the sink for him to tackle. Tired, Alex had been chopping up firewood to add to the growing stack that would keep the fire in the front room going all winter. Innocently enough, Alex forgot to put the axe down when he responded to Margaret's order to administer a good hiding to those naughty girls who were deliberately driving her mad, playing that damned record player of his. They had given her a migraine and not responded to her usual threat of sending them to a home for naughty children. The three girls of necessity could tell when their mother's temper was about to explode and she would grab them one by one to administer a good slap. Margaret had been reading magazines and chain-smoking all day. Worse, she had imbibed too much coffee and become dehydrated. Despite Margaret's overindulgence, her migraine was the girl's fault and she was going to make sure they were punished for it. Seeing their father charging towards them, wielding an axe over his head, the girls bolted, scattering in three different directions and hiding away in their usual places, one under a bed, another in the shed, while the eldest ran into next door's garden. Failing to catch any of the fugitives, Alex set about silencing the cause of the trouble and with frenzied blows from the long-handled axe, reduced the wind-up gramophone and its record to splinters which spread over the lawn like black autumn leaves. The next-door neighbours had watched this spectacle with open mouths and were relieved when two burly policemen in a police car, bells ringing to announce a scandalous event that had just occurred, screeched to a halt outside their adjoined semi-detached. Alex's neighbours had made a frantic telephone call from the call box outside their house, thinking that one of the children was about to be murdered. Margaret, not wanting the stigma of being judged an unfit mother and having the girls put into local authority care, or Alex to be judged a lunatic, 
put on an Oscar performance for the policeman and managed to sweet-talk them out of arresting Alex. The authorities made threatening noises for a while, but soon let matters drop and life for the girls improved. Margaret punished in the usual way, but Alex was a handsome man with many admirers, and when Margaret heard that the lady in the greengrocers had offered the handsome Scotsman more than an extra cabbage, she forgave him sooner than she had wanted to. Time passed. The girls left home early for more peaceful climbs. Alex looked into his shopping bag to retrieve the letter he had received that morning from Helen, the youngest granddaughter of his eldest brother, William. William had emigrated to Canada years ago, but being the firstborn of Hugh's thirteen children, Alex guessed that he was the most likely to have been privy to the secrets of his parents. But he wasn't particularly hopeful of a result when he opened the bulky envelope with its row of Canadian stamps. What a surprise was in store for him. The envelope contained a faded newspaper cutting from 1925, and pinned to it was Helen's two-page letter, in which she elaborated on her grandfather's memories of Hugh's sudden exit from family life, while the facts of the incident were sensationalised in the faded newsprint of the Lanarkshire Herald of the 25th of August 1925. The article made grim reading. Hugh had been taken off to Hartwood Asylum for threatening his wife and youngest son with an axe. Seven years later, in 1932, Hugh had died in the asylum, apparently alone, having never made it back home. How sad, concluded Alex, and wondered whether or not he'd had a proper funeral. Alex knew then that Hugh had been hidden away to lessen the scandal of his desire to know whether his wife was carrying on with another man or not. Alex had let his mother convince him that the terror he experienced about being chased was no more than the waking nightmares of a sensitive wee soul. Dormant memories came to life and nearly 80 years rolled away as Alex read more of the newspaper account and Helen's letter. As if stepping into a film set, Alex re-ran William's account of the 1925 incident, in which Hugh confronted his wife over the rumours circulating about her and an unidentified male. Evidently, a friend of Hugh's could not bear it that Hugh had been wearing a set of Cuckold's horns and not knowing it. Alex's mother had failed to give Hugh a satisfactory answer to his questioning and something snapped in his head, so he told William, when he imagined that his workmates must have been mocking him for months without him knowing it. Hugh had grabbed a long-handled axe propped outside the back door brandished it over his head and swung it round and round while chasing his wife and her bastard down the road, swearing that he would chop them to bits when he caught them. Alex's mother had grabbed little Alex by the hand and dragged him behind her, his feet not touching the ground, running like the wind and ending up in the town square. Hugh, giving chase, 
had threatened to decapitate anyone who tried to save the two of them. But fortunately, the metal studs on the soles of his work boots had made them slippery on the pavement and slowed him down sufficiently that he failed to catch up with the fugitives. William had been on his way home from an early shift at the mine, seen what was happening, and chased his father down and managed to disarm him, winning possession of the axe after a brief scuffle. A policeman, a doctor, and two tall male nurses had arrived, forced their way through the knot of frightened townsfolk, tied Hugh's arms behind his back in a straitjacket, and driven him away in a World War I ambulance. William had told Helen that his mother had tried to save her husband from being taken away, informing them that her husband hadn't been quite himself, since he received a blow on the head in a recent pit accident. William was not certain that his mother was innocent, but her weaving of truths and untruths became more plausible as time passed and the cover-up as deep as the winter snow on the hills above the cramped miners' row cottages. Helen's envelope contained another faded press cutting from the 12th of November 1912, in which the suicide of a Thomas Mackay in Perth's prison's condemned cell. One of William's and Hugh's first cousins was described. Thomas, driven mad and believing his young wife had been carrying on with another man, had dashed her brains out with a half-brick, and learning that life in prison was to replace his death sentence, Thomas had hung himself in the hope that he'd be reunited in death with his innocent wife. Jesus Christ, muttered Alex, realising that Thomas's unfortunate action may well have made the authorities reluctant to let Hugh out to return to his family. Alex looked inside the envelope one last time. Something was stuck in the side of it and pulling it out found a photograph the spots of dried out damp suggesting that it had been stored in a damp place. It was a portrait of a man who stared back at the camera lens with the confidence of a handsome face. It was a braw face, Alex's mother would have called it. Alex felt as if he were looking in a mirror. The same shaped contours, the same cheekbones, sharp enough to cut butter with and eyes so unusually light, blue bordering on grey, that even in the monochrome photograph, Alex could tell he was looking into eyes that were the same as his own. Alex swallowed hard to get rid of the lump in his throat, carefully returning the photograph to Helen's envelope. Well, 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 Alex said to himself, who would have thought it? My God, the poor sod, what a waste. Alex's frustration with his wife, the daughters who kept away, and even his mother evaporated. He knew now that he was Hugh's son. The tragedy of it, all for nothing. The rain had stopped. The salon door opened and disgorged a neatly coiffed Margaret onto the pavement. 
She linked an arm through one of Alex's to steady herself. The sun struggled to make a last appearance in the darkening sky, and a hazy light show of rainbow colours appeared in an arch above the old couple. Well, about time too, smiled Alex. I've got you a nice bit of salmon for tea.